Hello, everyone, and welcome to Close Readings. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizade, and I'm very happy today to be bringing um, Sylvie Thodi to uh, to you, to the podcast, um, and uh, to talk about a poem called The Far West, which is by a poet named Tim Dlugos. Um, that poem uh, is linked to two in the episode notes. So you'll be able to find a text of it and look at it as we talk about it, if you like. Um, and we will have lots more to say, or really Sylvie will have lots more to say in a few minutes about who Tim Dlugos was, um, what the poetry was like, where this poem fits in um, to uh, his career, his work, and um, sorts of related poems. But first, let me tell you more about our guest. So Sylvie Thodi is a graduate student in English at the University of California, Berkeley, where she works on poetry and poetics uh, with particular interest in the poetry of the HIV AIDS crisis. Um, and so one thing to know about Lugos and this poem in particular, is that it fits very much into that um, into that interest of Sylvie's. Um, but her interests in writing cover more than just that um, perhaps narrow seeming historical period. In fact, they they vary quite widely. And she's already, though early in her career, published in such illustrious places as the the journal Victorian Poetry, um, which, for those of you who don't know it is what it sounds like. It's on a poetry of a very different period. She has a fantastic article on Elizabeth Siddle, um, which is also, and, and the idea of decreation, and is also, um, in a way, an article on the poet Anne Carson. So, I mean, even in that, um, or, or sort of indebted to um, the poet and critic and essayist Anne Carson. Um, so in a way that, even in that one article, I think we get some sense of the, wide-ranging curiosity that guides Sylvie in her work. Uh, but she's also published um, reviews and essays in um, Chicago Review, Cambridge Literary Review, and Jacket, too. Um, I, I first I first, I met Sylvie just recently, or didn't exactly meet, but uh, I mean, I could tell the story um, at the um, MLA conference, which, for those of you who don't know, and like, God bless you if you don't. Um, is the the MLA is that you know the Modern Language Association, and um, every year going back to I don't know when, the big um, sort of convention of um, academics who work in in literary studies um, gather at an annual convention that sort of rotates from city to city. This year, it was in my home city or just about my home city of Philadelphia. And I went to the conference. Um, I mean, often I'm there because I'm giving a paper or something like that myself. I had the really kind of blessed experience, this MLA of going without doing anything like that. And instead I was just going to panels that sounded interesting to me. I wanted to take in as much poetry scholarship as I could um, partly to thinking, oh, I want to meet people that are um, outside of my immediate social circle in part so that I can get to know their work, in part so that I can invite people onto the podcast who are um, up and coming and um, whose work is um, seems exciting to me and amenable to this format. So anyway, I went to a panel where Sylvie was giving a paper, indeed a paper on the poet 
that we'll be talking about today, though not not specifically on the poem that we're talking about today. Um, Sylvie gave a paper on Lugos's great poem G9, which um, as she and I subsequently exchanged emails and we're talking about what a good poem might be for this podcast format, we thought, oh, that would be a great one, except that it's probably too long um, to do well in a format like this. But, you know, I, I guess I can say that part of what just really struck me and what I admired so much about her paper was how she was taking the tools of prosodic analysis. So that was a panel that was on grammar and poetry. Uh, but what Sylvie was really thinking about there was prosody. Um, so, you know, for those who don't know, would refer to things like doing metrical scansion, um, talking about the um, the sense in which a, a poem's rhythm does or doesn't conform to certain metrical schemes and sonic patterns and... Um, all well and good to do that kind of analysis. But what I found so striking in Sylvie's case was that she was using some of those tools to talk about a poet who seemed like not the most obvious candidate to bring that kind of attention to bear on. And in order to make it work, and boy, did she really make it work, she had to um, sort of adapt that kind of analysis to have a, a kind of flexible and ad hoc sense of what meter is what prosody is um and and you know for a kind of poetry that is often understood sort of sociologically or in terms of its um kind of testimonial status with respect to a moment of historical um crisis um political crisis medical crisis um it certainly was not the case that sylvie was um evacuating or setting to the side those kinds of considerations which are just you know obviously present and urgent in the poetry that she's looking at but but actually it was what she was doing was something um much more interesting which was to to show how by paying attention to the way the poem sounds the way the poem um, does and doesn't conform to certain kinds of metrical schemes that she was finding, how those in sort of along those avenues in those ways, it was precisely how it was becoming meaningful in all of these sorts of extra literary ways, all of the, the, the reasons why we might care about the poetry in the first place. She was bringing that kind of attention to bear on poetry that we, I don't know, whoever we are, um, tend not to um, grant as easily um, this this kind of attention to. Um, and um, I was just blown away by the paper. And I I, um, I had to run while the panel was still in Q. I, like I asked a question during the Q&A. Um, and maybe we can talk some today about the kind of interest I had there too. But anyway, I asked a question that I had to run. I felt badly because I wanted to go say hello to Sylvie afterwards. And then I thought, oh, I should write her an email and tell her how great the paper was and ask her to be on the podcast. And as soon as I pulled up my phone, there was an email from Sylvie to me <laughs> saying hello and um, t- talking a bit about the podcast. And I thought, oh, well, this um, we've, we've definitely got to do this. So that's how this invitation was born. I'm so excited to have such an exciting young scholar on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk about Lugos, who is not a poet I know very well, but a poet that I'm eager to learn more about. Um, Sylvie Thody, welcome to Close Readings. Um, You're joining us from California today. How how are you doing? 
I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk about Delugos and everything else. Yeah, joining you from Berkeley, California, where it's been not sunny, but very rainy recently. Yeah, I've been I've been following the news. Has has the rain stopped? Are you? Is it, it has. dry today? Hopefully, yeah. it will continue to be quiet and not rainy here for our recording. Good. But good, good. Yeah, I hope so. Well, uh, you know, maybe a little bit of rain might create an interesting sonic atmosphere or something <laughs> for us if it happens. So let's. Oh yeah, we don't need to worry. Um, okay, so um, Tim Lugos. Um, Sylvie, I wonder if you might just tell us a little bit about um, how you became interested in this poet, but but then also, um, and in whatever order you'd like, um, for, for people who've never heard of him or read anything by him, how would you sort of situate him in literary history or in other kinds of ways? Um, and, and, and maybe... Um, eventually uh tell us something also about where this poem the far west um fits into his life and his work um but but maybe maybe just start by telling us sort of how you came to read tim Lugos. how did that happen for you sure um yeah so i first came across tim Lugos in reading two anthologies actually and they're two anthologies of hiv aids poetry um, both edited by Michael Klein and also Michael Klein and Richard McCann. And the anthologies are called Poets for Life and Things Shaped in Passing. Um, and something to say about HIV AIDS poetry, even before kind of getting into Delugos in particular, is that it's made up of a really eclectic group of writers and a lot of how um, this group kind of came together, if we might say that, is through the anthology. So we're in the 80s and 90s, kind of a, a big era for anthologies, both anthologies of poetry and also anthologies of, of criticism and theory. Um, so I came across Lugos in reading this, these anthologies, and I came across his poem G9 first, which he mentioned in the introduction. Um, G9 is a kind of incredible, almost an epic poem. It's 637 lines of short verse and this kind of wide-ranging brilliant um, explosion of spirit and life that Lugos wrote while he was in G9, which was the AIDS ward in Roosevelt Hospital in Manhattan. Um, and I was just kind of stunned reading and quickly, you know, ordered his collected poems online, um, right. edited, published by Nightboat, edited by his friend David Trinidad, and just got reading more and more of his work and kind of fell in love with it. Um, but I think it's worth noting, the reason I bring up that I first read him in, a, in an anthology was that I first read him as a poet of HIV AIDS, and I think right. that is still what he's most known for. Um, and um, yeah, and thinking a bit about, you know, what is the po poetic response to this crisis? That was kind of the question that was first fueling my interest in it um, and first how I came to him. Right. But it might, I mean, I, I guess I'm, tell me if I'm, uh, sort of reading your implication correctly that it that it you know it's um it might seem insufficient or somehow um reductive um to say of any artist or writer or person for that matter that what should define the kind of category i mean we don't we don't put people into categories and quite the with quite the same sort of um 
I don't know, uh, ref, ref, you know, kind of instinctive um, necessity that we seem to want to put writers into kind of schools and camps and so forth. Though, of course, we do that with people in other ways. Um, it would it would seem reductive maybe to say like, okay, what defines this poet's career is their um, response to a kind of medical condition um, or to an illness or to a historical event or a period, you know, a particular kind of moment in their lives. So, uh, you know, obviously I'm, I'm sure Delugos, you know, was writing poems before he became ill, right? And um, that that his poems aren't um, totally mappable necessarily under that rubric. But but having said that, that was an important part of his poetry. And I like this. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really useful to think about the anthology as something that was doing some of that conceptual organizing for you, at least at first. Um, mm-hmm. Once once you started reading him out of the anthology and once, you know, that David Trinidad edited collected poems arrived and you cracked it open and got (laughs) immersed. Um, Were there surprises for you at that point? Or, um, you know, the the was, is, is the poet of, of G nine sort of recognizable throughout the pages of the collected poems? Yeah. Um, so reading kind of further back in his career, he starts writing poetry in the early seventies. Um, he sounds a lot like Frank O'Hara, who was a model for him. And you can see, in his, especially in some of his early poems, like very, very, very influenced by O'Hara. He was also, maybe this is maybe a moment to get into some of his biography. Um, sure. From his earliest days, DeLugos was deeply involved with the church and felt a vocation. So he, joins the Christian Brothers when he's 18 years old and enters LaSalle College um, and really for a while thought he was going to be a priest and actually we'll come back to this maybe in a bit, but was in training to become a priest when he died. But in those early poems, there's kind of city life. He moves to to D.C. after he drops out of college. Um, He drops out because he gets involved in Vietnam War protests and begins discovering himself as a gay man and decides that a Christian Brotherhood is not the place for him at that moment. Um, He moves to DC, he gets involved in kind of urban life, and there's this urban verve that you get from O'Hara that's in his poetry at the same time. Did you tell us, Sylvie, sorry, did you tell us what year he was born? Did I miss that? Um, No, sorry. So he was born in 1950 in Springfield, Massachusetts. Okay, great, Um, great. And I'm sorry for interrupting, but that just helps me sort of track the the, the sense of belatedness with respect to O'Hara as as one model. Totally. And then thinking about the Vietnam War and all that, it sort of helps. Okay, Mm -hmm. so... Yeah, so he goes to college in in 1968 as well, which is quite the year to enter college. (laughs) For sure, Uh, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I say, so, I so yeah go, go on with this yeah so, go on with the start right, right, um, right yeah so he some reading his early poetry i think the obviously the historical moment of hiv that's in his late poetry isn't there but the kind of driving forces in his poetry throughout his life which is both kind of the city humor this kind of urban wit um and then at the same time an interest in grace and transcendence um when I read O'Hara, I think of, or when I read DeLugos, I think of O'Hara. I also think of another poet who's a favorite of mine, the Trappist monk, Thomas Merton. Um, mm. 
as maybe another influence on Delugos. And those are two very different voices. Um, and I find that's part of why I find Deluga such an interesting poet is that you have these scenes of kind of comedic, almost kind of a uh, Lana Turner poem to cite one of mm-hmm. O'Hara's famous poems. Um, and then suddenly you'll shift registers and be, and be in this moment of, of grace, of transcendence. Um, Deluga at one point said that grace in a very orthodox sense was his major preoccupation in his life and poetry. And that really comes through from the earliest work until his final work um, as he's, as he's dying. Right. Yeah. I mean, I was trying to think, you know, the, the O'Hara um, comparison made sense to me, but, you know, then you introduced this idea of like, he thought he might be a priest, you know, and I thought, mm-hmm. well, you know, that uh, part of me wants to say, Oh, when, when O'Hara is writing about grace, he means like a person named grace. not. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, I think, does he really? I don't know. Now I want to complicate, you know, my own um, instinctive kind of reading of, o- of of O'Hara. But this is a really interesting kind of multivalent um, or sort of multiple mm-hmm. streams coming into what counts as um, poetry or, um, you know, influence for um, mm-hmm. Delugos. Um, is it relevant for us to know when he, I mean, so born in 1950, how long, um, when did he become sick? Um, when did he yeah. die? Should we know those yeah, things? Yeah. So, yeah, like I said, mentioned, so he moves to DC when he drops out of college. He, at one point there, reads with John Ashbery, he starts writing. Um, then he moves to Manhattan in 1976. Um, and once he gets there, he becomes very involved in the poetry project at St. Mark's Church. He's friends with poets like Joe Brainerd. Um, Eileen Miles was a friend throughout his mm-hmm. life. Um, he also is writing as a journalist for gay newspapers in New York. So that's Christopher Street newspaper and the New York Native. Um, he tests positive for HIV in 1987 um, and is diagnosed with AIDS two years later. Um, and during that time, he enters Yale Divinity School um, and becomes a postulant for holy rites in the Episcopal Church. So he starts his life as a Catholic, um, becomes an Episcopalian, and soon after he enters Divinity School, his health takes a turn for the worse. Um, and in yeah. summer 1989, he's admitted to G9, the AIDS ward at Roosevelt Hospital. Um, and while he's in the hospital, he writes many of what I think people call his best poems. So the poem G9 a poem called Parachute, a poem called Powerless. He has a kind of explosion of of creative output there. Um, He gets better for a little bit after his hospitalization, and he travels to San Francisco in early 1990. Um, During that trip, he went to a town called Bolinas, which would be relevant for for the poem today, that's why I mention it. Um, Writes a little bit after that, and then he dies on December 3rd, 1990 of AIDS-related complications. He's 40 years old. Um, which, strangely, is, isn't that how old O'Hara was when he died? It is, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I think earlier, Sylvie, you said um, in talking about poetry of the HIV-AIDS crisis and the anthology as a kind of form of organizing that work, that it was a really kind of heterogene- heterogeneous kind mm-hmm. of writing. Um, it, it occurs to me, actually, as maybe one example, I, so I don't, I, 
I don't know if he was if he would have been collected in any of these anthologies. That actually, this podcast has already had one, you know, poem of the HIV/AIDS crisis featured on it very early when we did um, James Merrill's poem "Christmas Tree" with yeah. Lanny Hammer. Um, another poem written from um, a, a sickbed, you know, in a poet's mm-hmm. dying days, that written a few years after um, um, Delugos's death. Um, can you give us some sort of sense of like where in the very tapestry of the poetry that you're focusing on in this? Um, mm-hmm. I take it that maybe you'll be, you know, writing a dissertation on poetry, you know, and other kinds of writing that fit into this. Um, Mm -hmm. historical period, this moment. Um, What's the kind of nook or corner of it that Delugos um, occupies? And I mean that question as much sort of in terms of his style or his approach to poetry or what the poetry sort of feels or sounds like formally or by by way of kind of genealogy Mm -hmm. or something, sort of how do you place his poetry relative to other poetry that was collected in those anthologies? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, just to respond to a second for the, to the Merrill question, because Christmas Tree is Good. an incredible poem. Um, it's not in one of the anthologies because it comes out too late, actually. The anthologies right. are 87 and 92, I want to say. I think it's in one that right. comes out in the 2000s. Um, but something that's interesting about, you know, if we want to call it HIV AIDS poetry, like you said earlier, I'm always also a little bit um, uncomfortable with that label because it feels reductive. But for for ease of conversation we can use it um it's a wide range of poets and a wide range of poets in terms of career and stature so you have someone like james merrill who's writing christmas tree and is one of the most one of the foremost poets of his generation and you also have poets who are writing in zines who maybe aren't who are self-publishing who aren't um as well known and who Mm -hmm. have kind of a scattered don't publish full collections a kind of scattered output um and they also get collected in these anthologies mm-hmm. uh there's a wide range of poets a lot of them are writing from new york um mm-hmm. there's a uh a lot of them also around this kind of poetry project scene um i would say Delugos in terms of how he fits in um he It's hard to say because he moves in so many different directions in the poems. Um, there's a there's a mode of of HIV AIDS poetry that's very angry, very explicitly angry, and there, that's in, that's an important element of the poetry um, that kind of falls in step with the activist movements at the time. So ACT UP New York being one of the one of the most famous ones. I wouldn't say Delugos is part of that. He is kind of at a bit of a remove, a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, in a kind of um, personal vein, a, a, a vein of witness, of standing mm-hmm. back and kind of thinking through and processing how what, what's happening in his own life and the lives, lives of the friends around him. He's also a poet like O'Hara who often mentions his friends. Um, right, right. And his kind of, if you almost, almost like a coterie poet. Um, yeah. I wonder how much the, the devotional training or his mm-hmm. religious um, mm-hmm. sort of interests what that does in in particular to the the kind of tropes or moves that one might expect in a poem you know of this kind 
But I guess probably mm-hmm. the best way for us to discover an answer to that is to have a poem to talk about. <laughs> but did you have more to say um, uh, uh, with respect to this kind of context setting or would you rather us get onto the poem, Sylvie, your call? I think it'll help us to get onto the poem. Good. Let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. So the poem is called the far West. Um, I love it when we have a recording. Unfortunately, we don't have a recording of this one. So um, I also love it. I'm happy to say when we get to hear the, um, the guest and the expert read the poem in, in their own voice. Um, Sylvie, would you be willing to read the far West for us? I'd love to. Thanks. The far west. The city and the continent trail off into cold black water the same way. At the western edge, a flat stretch with precipitous plains set perpendicular and back from the beach or beach equivalent. A blacktop margin where the drugged and dying trudge queue up for Hades. Bellinas had its junky lady with gray skin, gray sweater, stumbling through the sand with a short burst intensity and long-run aimlessness of crackhead hustlers on the West Street piers. Dreams of Bellinas haunted me for years before I saw it. I'd huddle at the foot of the cliff in a cold wind late at night, wrapped in Indian blankets, waiting with strangers as the tidal wave or tumbler hit. Tonight I walk with old friends in a new dream, past a vest pocket park of great formality and charm in the far West Village. My disaffected former confidant has grown a ponytail and cruises up the street on a hog, a chopper, which seems a perfect locomotive choice. I walk out to the quay where gondola after enormous gondola departs for the other side. Not New Jersey anymore, any more than something prosaic as another mass of land past the bright horizon could function as a mirror of the chopped away Bellinas Hill. Oh, western edge where points of interest on maps of individual hearts and bodies disappear in waters of a depth unfathomable, even in a dream. I had thought that sleep was meant to blunt your sharpness, not to hone and polish with the lapping of the hungry waves of Lethe. So that's um, Sylvie Thody reading Tim Lugos's The Far West. Um, Sylvie, um, thank you for that. That was really great. I wonder, um, maybe just as a way to begin, it's obvious enough, I guess, and we could talk about the title of the poem um, a bit, which seems to me to be, on the one hand, it seems relatively straightforward, and on the other, you know, poetry critic that I am, I'm thinking, ah, I see sort of interesting ambiguity right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, What do you think about when you think about that title for this poem, The Far West? Mm -hmm. Um, it's a title that's laden with a lot of meaning, actually. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, um, let's start unpacking. So, yeah. Yeah. So the first, first thing is that it, to me, it kind of clues us into that this might be an elegy of some sort. Um, and that's because the West or the Western horizon in a lot of L ele- as kind of a, is a set, is a set piece of elegy in a certain extent. And for the simple reason that the sun sets in the West, the day ends in the West, um, and kind of does life end in the West as well? Um, so already kind of mm-hmm. placing us mm-hmm. in the mode of elegy, knowing what we do about Kalugos, about his biography, 
this is also kind of a self-elegy. Um, and that mm-hmm. opens up a lot of questions about what does it mean to, to elegize yourself? Um, things you can get into right. further. Yeah. Yeah. I'll also say that the West and kind of going West has a particular valence in a lot of AIDS literature and media. Um, and some of the most famous example of this, examples of this kind of come after Delugos. But one is in the great play Angels in America by Tony Kushner. Um, in that play, heaven, we're told, is a place much like San Francisco. And there's this kind of gesture, t- gesture towards going west. And the, one of the final scenes of the play, the famous monologue given by this character named Harper, in which she's on a plane going to San Francisco, um, it opens night flight to San Francisco, chase the moon across America, which is just a line I find so beautiful and think about all the time. But this kind of, this character in her final, in this flight is in a, tri- a scene of triumph, um, the kind of triumphant move to go west. The other example from kind of AIDS media with going west is the song called Go West, um, which was originally recorded by the village people. I, I want to say it's 79, it might be 76. Um, so obviously the village people places us into a certain gay genealogy, mm-hmm. um, but, and, and another sense that, of what the West might signify too, absolutely, right? But, absolutely. but I'm anticipating things uh, go on. Yeah. Yes. No, yeah. for sure. There's some, yeah. we're going to get one more in a second. Yeah. Good. Um, so that song was then re-recorded by the British band, the Pet Shop Boys, um, uh-huh. after the gay British filmmaker, Derek Jarman asked them to perform it at an AIDS fundraiser. Um, and that recording of the song is, is really incredible. And in the oh. music video for it, it's all kind of set in this Soviet um, red and the music video, I check it out. It's it's really fascinating. This kind of strange animations of the USSR um, in which, so in that case, Going West kind of takes on a, you know, post-Soviet call. Um, mm. All of which is to say there's a lot of the wet, the word West is really polyvalent in this in this moment in time that Dulagos is writing, um, both in the kind of poetic history, in gay history, in the history of AIDS. So we have right. a lot just from the first just from the title alone. Right, right, um, and the the um, the far West um, mm-hmm. might suggest um, or I mean I'm I'm just thinking for instance about you know, how might the, how might we feel differently if the poem were just called the West or something. And some of Mm -hmm. this is perhaps already latent in even what that, the work that title would have done, but to my ear anyway, and tell me if this sounds right to you. And I, you know, obviously in part here, I'm guided by knowing now where the poem winds up getting by its very Mm -hmm. end, but somehow that adjective far suggests to me that we're in the realm here not just of geography but of myth or something of something mm-hmm. beyond the reality in any kind of straightforward mm-hmm. sense this isn't just the west mm-hmm. this is the far west um and maybe bolinas you know which is this um town with this interesting artistic and poetic history just north of san francisco i think right um Maybe that's one version of what the far West would be, but um, in in another sense too, at least to my ear, that title wants to push us a little bit farther and like off the map, as it were. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then I think back to you know traditions as old as I don't know, like Homer, where you know 
in the Odyssey where like the the boat the you know sailing out west like you go too far you get beyond the kind of uh reach of human of sort of known human civilization or whatever and out into the into the unknown um mm-hmm. and i guess to the underworld which is maybe also you know not maybe also relevant here okay so the so even just in the title we get this kind of interestingly thick sense of what what might be um indicated um the first lines of the poem seem to want to do a kind of geographical work but maybe there's more to them than that too so the first so people who aren't looking i mean i guess one thing to know about this poem is for me looking at it it's kind of a skinny poem Did, (laughs) did 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 lucas write a lot of skinny poems sylvie is that a kind of preferred line for him he did, especially especially towards the end of his life. Yeah, so the poem um, would be also worth mentioning for those who aren't looking at it is all, there's no stanza break. It's all one right. column of text that extends over almost three pages. Um, That's great. I printed it out. Yeah, and, and perhaps, yeah, sorry, go on. Yeah, please. You. Um, it's loosely in iambic trimeter. There's some occasional lines of iambic tetrameter. Um, and I mean, loosely, quite seriously, it's very loose. <laughs> Um, but like with his poem G9, um, that oscillation between trimeter and tetrameter calls up something called hymn meter, um, which are, is it's the meter that a lot of uh, Christian hymns are written in. And for Dulugos, who's deeply st- steeped in, in um, liturgical rhythms, I think that's quite a quite a live prosodic element for him. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's probably why we see it so much in his in his later work both that he's trained to become a priest, he's thinking actively about the afterlife. How does religion help him to understand the afterlife? How does kind of going through liturgy, the rhythms of liturgy help him to conceptualize what that might be? And I think you see that quite a bit in in his poetry here. Yeah, that's great. So um, I, I'm sure that what you just said is um, is crystal clear to most of our audience, but I don't want to leave anyone entirely behind here. So just tetrameter and trimeter mm-hmm. um sylvie you're the the real prosodic expert here just for the totally uninitiated like how would you describe like what what do those terms mean tetrameter is four trimeter is three but yep. four of what and three of what and when you say mm-hmm. loosely what do you mean and <laughs> i guess just say a bit more about that yeah totally um so tetrameter is four is a line of four feet of in this case, I am so ba 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 ba. Trimeter, the same case, but three ba 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 ba. Um, and I can give an example of of the hymn meter that I was talking about. Maybe the most famous example, which is yeah. Amazing Grace. Um, Let's hear it. Which <laughs> pretty sure I will not be singing it, but I will say it. <laughs> That's good enough. Yeah. Um. So, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch line. like yeah. me. Right. Yeah. So that's tetrameter, then trimeter. Um. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was right. blind and now free. Now I, I don't know if I got those final yeah. words right, right, but right. Yeah, 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 yeah. you know right. the rhythm. Now I'm free. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So, so, um, hymn meter. Um, you hear it also in um, ballads in um, mm-hmm. in the English tradition. You you'd hear it. You often hear something quite similar in Emily Dickinson's um, poems, yeah. which are also indebted to this kind of hymn meter um form alternating lines of four beats and three beats the iams 
an I am is an unstressed syllable followed by a stressed mm-hmm. syllable. Those are kind of relative terms. You'd hear it sort of in the natural cadences of your speech. Now, but Sylvie, just and this goes back to sort of some of what I was talking about when I was saying how wonderful your paper at MLA was. Um, I take it that it's not your view that what Dlugos is, and maybe we we can't know for sure, but just your kind of implied your your inferred sense of what it is he's doing when he writes a poem is that you think he's kind of internalized certain rhythms. They come pretty naturally to him because of what's been important to him, what he's heard over the years, so that when he sits down to write a poem, it's not as though he's thinking, oh, I need four beats in this line and three beats in this and four <laughs> beats in this one and three beats in this. Instead, it's it's as though what comes out tends to fall in something like this pattern because it's been mm-hmm. internalized before the poem ever mm-hmm. began. Is that mm-hmm. a fair description of what you think is going on in terms of poetics here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, he's not a poet who I think is particularly concerned about making every word fall into exactly the right stresses and exactly the right places Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. to maintaining that meter throughout some of what then comes of that is this feeling of urgency in his poetry so again Mm -hmm. these long long poems g9 the 600 line poem i mentioned also has no stanza breaks you have these long columns of text that have a hint of meter, but it feels like Lugos is almost outpacing his own meter. So uh, often there's words that will kind of drop onto the next line when they should be on the previous line if they were gonna if the meter was going to read what we would say correctly, maybe. Um, right. So you get this sense of kind of an outpouring of voice and of language. Um, it feels almost a little bit prophetic. Um, in maybe because of the context that Dilgos is writing in, it makes me think of kind of like a prophetic utterance um, of just this expansion of text. Um, like like there's a container here, maybe the right-hand margin mm-hmm. or the end of the line or the end of yeah. the metrical unit as we expect it to fall, and the lines keep spilling over um, mm-hmm. the, the edges of that container. I mean, I'm noticing... Um, and I guess this is a function of what happens when you have a skinny poem um, th- that, for instance, the first sentence in the poem doesn't end until line 11, if I've got the, yes. that right, on the word Hades. Um, mm-hmm. So I'll read that first sentence again. But, and just keep in mind, if you're not looking, this is 11 or 10 and a half lines of poetry. The city and the continent trail off into cold black water the same way. At the western edge, a flat stretch with precipitous plains set perpendicular and back from the beach or beach equivalent, a blacktop margin where the drugged and dying trudge queue up for Hades. Um, so those lines are pretty heavily enjammed, right? Like... Um, Meaning we get to the end of the line and there isn't the end of a grammatical unit, but instead they're they're spilling over. And interestingly, I mean, I guess the thing I want to hear you talk about, Sylvie, is how what we've been talking about for the last few minutes here, the Delugos's relationship to form and even something we might call more simply like format, but the, the yeah. kind of appearance of the of the words on the page how that is related to the 
poem's sense of geography and of like placing mm-hmm. us on a map, you know? So like mm-hmm. both of these seem to me like, I don't know, um, borders are involved and sort of mm-hmm. um, outlines and um, mm-hmm. things sort of spilling over. But I, I guess I, I, mm-hmm. I guess I want to know um, what, what, what you think of putting those two things together. So sort of verse form mm-hmm. on the one hand and geography on the other, they don't, they wouldn't seem at first to have much to do with each other, but I suspect mm-hmm. there's something interesting going on in their relation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, so Dugos includes the word margin in the poem at the end of the sentence you just read, a blacktop mm-hmm. margin where the drugged and dying trudge. I think that maybe is a word that feels relevant to both. Um, so the margin of the page, of course, and then also the margins at the end, at the edge of the map. Like you were talking earlier, the far mm-hmm. west seems to be, this is almost a space off the map. Um, and these figures that we see in the poem are kind of right at the edge there, kind of waiting to go beyond the map, beyond the limits of the world. And um, maybe we're, it's worth mentioning now that just clarifying the city and the continent, that's the first line of the poem. Yeah, good. The city in question is New York um, and the continent is North America. And the edge of the continent that he's talking about is the edge of California along this town, Bellinas. Um, where you've ever been to uh, one of these kind of Northern California t- seaside towns often, and this is the case with Bolinas, they have the sa- a similar geography, which is incredibly striking, where you kind of are in the mountains, you come down a little bit, you hit the town, you come down off of a cliff, and there's the ocean, and the ocean kind of yeah. crashing up against, the, up against the continent, and it really does sort of feel a bit of, like the end of the world. Um, there's but, an incredible... Yeah, go on, please. Go ahead. I was going to say there's an incredible this this poem makes me think of an incredible Joan Didion line actually that I think captures this sense of California being the edge really beautifully. Um, I can read it if that's please. I'm I'm never gonna I'm I'm Um, never going to deny (laughs) Joan Didion's presence on the podcast. That's great. Yeah. So Didion writes in her essay "Notes of a Native Daughter" that California is a place. Quote, California is a place in which a boom mentality and a sense of Chekhovian loss meet an uneasy suspension, in which the mind is troubled by some buried but ineradicable suspicion that things better work here, because here, beneath the immense bleached sky, is where we run out of continent. The, that's, that's great. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful sentence, but I think also captures something really palpable about California and that. And I think the California that Delugos is writing about, where it's you kind of there's often there's not really like at least especially in Northern California, there's aren't there aren't the kind of pretty beaches of LA. It's a pretty sudden and jagged right. drop into the water and you look out right. into the, the Pacific and it's just a kind of blurry horizon. Right. Um, and I love what Didion writes about that. If if things don't work out here, we're kind of screwed. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> Yeah, that 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 yeah, that's a recognizably um, Didion esque uh, sentiment. Yeah. Um, but there's something confusing going on, and 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 I want mm-hmm. to to for us to try to be as precise about it as we can. I mean, you you told us the city named in the first two words of the poem, <clears throat> you know, is not San Francisco or what it's it's New York City, mm-hmm. and 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 um, and yet we're in. We're immediately, um, in your view, sort of, 
superimposing one geography over another. Mm -hmm. Is that right? So all of that Mm -hmm. stuff we were saying about what's sort of um, indicated by the West um, as a as a concept, but also as a as a real sort of geographical direction. Mm-hmm. What is um, what does New York City, which you know, for <laughs> we have listeners all around the world, <laughs> that's not in the West, right? That's um, <laughs> at least in American terms. I mean, I understand directions are all relative to each other, but for a U.S. audience, right? New York City is very much the East, or as I learned to say mm-hmm. as a Californian child, back East. Right. Um, so, so what, what's New York City doing here and what's its relation mm-hmm. to the geography, which you've just so, you know, vividly evoked for us in this description of the California coast? Yeah. So Delugos is talking about what you might call the West Coast of New York, which is a very, <laughs> if you were to narrow, narrow, narrow down your scope and just have New York on a map. The western edge of New York is and you mean New York bordered City. by the Hudson River. Yeah. New York City, yes, sorry, New York City. Specifically, actually, also Manhattan, I think right. that Lugos is writing on. Um, the western edge of New York is bordered on the Hudson River, and then across the river is New Jersey. Um, <laughs> and Lugos compares, kind of superimposes Bolinas, this town in California on the edge, with the West Street Piers. Um, and those are piers on the lower edge of Manhattan, kind of bordering, or the edge of Chelsea, the neighborhood, and the West Village, which is a neighborhood that comes into this poem explicitly. Also, again, the, the phrase, the far west, comes explicitly with the far west village. Maybe we can talk about that in a second. Yeah. Um, so he's superimposing two coasts of a version. One would rarely call, I think, the piers of New York or the West village, a coast. It's kind of a strange image. Um, Yeah. I don't even think if you were Walt Whitman, you would do that, but no, uh, yeah, (laughs) but yeah, it's strange. But, but, and then also maybe just worth pointing out, right. That Chelsea and the West village as neighborhoods in Manhattan are also going to be neighborhoods that are, um, that were then. And, you know, um, we could just leave it at that, like pretty tightly associated with mm-hmm. um, gay culture and with mm-hmm. sort of important moments in um, in queer history and in uh, and in the AIDS crisis too, right? So absolutely important neighborhoods, those neighborhoods, yeah, and and specifically the piers that Delugos mentions. Mm-hmm. So the West Street piers, the piers along those neighborhoods are um, just to be explicit about it are. Uh, strips of land that jut out into the water that are on kind of um, poles in the water. And when in the 80s and 90s, they were um, places of cruising for people Mm -hmm. who were looking for connection, for sex, etc. They were largely populated by queer and trans people. And they were a place of um, connection of a kind of liberation away from supervision. So they were really important scene for gay life in kind of this from the sixties to the nineties, maybe fifties to the nineties in New York. Um, nowadays they've completely been changed. They've been privatized. Um, right. So I, I grew up in, lo- in lover West Manhattan to use mm-hmm. Lucas's terms. Uh, mm-hmm. I grew up playing little league on these piers. So they've really uh, changed quite a bit. Um, but that's the context that Delugos is writing in for the kind of west edge of Manhattan is not only an edge geographically, but also a kind of societal edge, those who are on the margins of society. 
Is it your sense, um, Sylvie, that the poem is being spoken from New York City, right? But that mm. that other geography, to the extent that it sort of comes into the poem, it does so tends seems to do, to do so mm-hmm. in the past tense and as a kind mm-hmm. of memory that gets superimposed. And I mean. Mm-hmm that might be to naturalize or, or to make more kind of readily available what had we, we've been treating as a real strangeness. I mean, I don't mean to take the strangeness away, but of the opening of this poem, like, isn't this the kind of thing that if you have lived in more than one place, you might be want to do, or if you visited more than one place, you might think, oh, this, you know, coastline reminds me of that other coastline or I'm sort of sort of I orient myself the same way because I have a kind of internalized sense of geography maybe in the same way that Delugos mm-hmm. had an internalized sense of meter <laughs> you know mm-hmm. um you know if the the sun sets over there that's where the water is you know you might think yeah um, hmm. um so um but so in a black top margin ends this way, a black top margin where the drugged and dying trudge queue up for Hades. Mm-hmm. Um, that black top is in New York city, right? Am I? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so if they're queuing up for Hades to like cross the river, then New Jersey is Hades. Is that <laughs> sort of the implication here? I think it is. And I think that's kind that's- of a, something of a classic New Yorker joke, I'm afraid. Right. Apologies to all the New Jerseyans out there. <laughs> Maybe we should quickly uh, just gloss it. Hades would be like the uh, kind of ancient Greek underworld, right? Or, underworld. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And Lemmy will talk a little bit more actually about the geography of Hades too. Um, oh, good. Yeah. Well, I mention it now, but to cross into Hades, you cross a river, which is River Styx. You're guided by a ferryman, ferryman named Karen. Um, so the drugged and dying kind of queuing up along a river to get to Hades immediately kind of makes in the geography of this poem, the Hudson River into a kind of sticks. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're going to get another river of Hades at the very yeah. end of the poem. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll hold off there. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But, but And in part, because before we get, I mean, it's interesting. So we get that first sentence ends on the word Hades in the mm-hmm. middle of the, I think I had it as the 11th line. I think that's right. And then pretty disorientingly to my eye, anyway, the next word of the poem, which begins the second stan- se- sentence of the poem, not stanza, there, there are no stanzas here. The second sentence of the poem is the place name Bolinus. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's another line break. So really that 11th line just mm-hmm. has three words in it, for Hades, Bolinus. Um, so putting those two place very different kinds of place names actually mm-hmm. sort of face to face here or or what what have you is interesting to me and um so so maybe um uh, Sylvie what's your account of like what's the thread that's being followed that allows for the leap from we're in New York City but it's a kind of mythical New York City whereby to cross the Hudson River is to go to Hades not you know to go mm-hmm. to New Jersey, but to go to the underworld, to go to Hades, and then immediately we're in some other place in some memory here. What's the mm-hmm. what's the kind of thread that's connecting those things, or or maybe just talk about that transition into this description yeah. of Bolinas. I think the thread is something about looking off into the looking into the horizon, looking off into the water, 
so to just return to the opening of the poem for one more second, the, the city and the continent trail off into cold black water the same way. So there's a sense in which even though in one we're in a crowded city and the other we're in a pretty desolate town on a California coastline, they, they fade off into darkness in a similar way. Um, I find it interesting, actually, that this isn't a sunset we're getting in the horizon. Mm. It's just the sun has seem, seemingly already set. We're in cold black water. Yeah. Um, maybe I wasn't I wasn't sure if I was going to mention this, um, but because it's her birthday, I might. Um, I hear in I know what you're going to say. Water, <laughs> <but> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It won't be her birthday when so, people are hearing this. But yes. OK, yeah, go on. Day recording. So yeah. on the day of recording today, it's, it's February 8th. It's Elizabeth Bishop's birthday. Um, and in her poem at the fish houses, there's a line, two lines that repeat. Um, she's describing water, cold, dark, deep, and absolutely clear element bearable to no mortal. Um, I hear an echo of that in Blue Ghost. Yeah. Um, in this, the city and the continent trail off into cold black water the same way. So it seems like there's a sense of ending that perhaps is the thread between both of these places that ending both of the land and also of the day of the t- of of life in some sense right right so that sense of sort of looking off into the edge into the into the into darkness mm-hmm. um is is the thread that's that's getting us from you know um the west village to Bolinas, which mm-hmm. had its junky lady with mm-hmm. gray skin gray sweater stumbling through the sand with the short burst intensity and long run aimlessness of crackhead hustlers on the West street piers. So by the end of that sentence, we're back to the other place, right? We keep Mm -hmm. sort of toggling back and forth between these two Wests. Yeah, totally. And then I love this moment in, you know, in part just because of the way it sounds West street piers, that sentence ends the second sentence of the poem, the next sentence in the next line begins dreams of Bellinus haunted me for years so mm-hmm. the, it's not a poem that rhymes regularly or very much, but there yeah. is a rhyme that you can't not hear, yeah. I think, right? Yeah. So what's the work that rhyme is doing for Delugos in that moment or um, anywhere else, mm-hmm. I guess? I mean, I, I've, I've heard up to this point some internal rhymes like um, mm-hmm. where the drugged and dying trudge was a kind of internal, mm-hmm. almost a sort of slant rhyme mm-hmm. or something. But um, yeah. yeah, what's the work that that rhyme is doing for you in in this moment? The long run aimlessness of crackhead hustlers on the West Street piers. Dreams mm-hmm. of Bolinas haunted me for years for before years. I saw it. Before I yeah. saw it, yeah, yeah, it's an incredible moment of rhyme. Um, I think what it first makes me think of is it's an it's a way of Delugos kind of inviting us into the collapsing of these two places that we've been talking about. So the West Street Piers repeats sonically in the dreams of Bellinus that have haunted him for years. It feels like almost one of those kind of like synapse firings um, where it's, we, we don't quite know why this connection has been made for him, but clearly it's been made and we kind of are meant to right. follow it through the kind of quickness of that rhyme. Right. Um, I also find it a kind of a, a deceptively simple sentence dreams of Bolinas haunted me for years before i saw it he's dreaming of a place he's never been he's never seen yeah. it's this kind of again kind of prophetic dreaming something that hasn't yet happened um but that seems to maybe have through the rhyme um 
a seed planted in New York in the piers that he's been on. Um, oh, yeah. So you have a kind of temporal collapse that's beginning here as well, besides right, the geographical collapse. It, it It's like you might almost think that, okay, so a rhyme conventionally might be there to because two things have become associated in the poet's mind, and therefore the poet is inclined to make them rhyme in some way. But here it's almost as though the the kind of arrow of causality runs the other way. It's like the thing mm-hmm. the things rhyme, which creates yeah. the the the, the right. kind of memory before it happens. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah, which and, which is kind of interesting then that the yeah. the writing of the poem seems to almost preempt or come before the events that are being written about. Yeah. Which brings us again into this kind of sense of urgency with Zorgos, where like the writing feels constantly at the fore for him and for us as readers. Right. Um even before what's actually being depicted in the poem. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder, you know, I, I, th- there is a way of like maybe explaining how it might have been that dreams of Bolinas could have haunted him mm-hmm. for years before he saw it, which is that I guess within certain sorts of communities of artists and writers, it was a kind of legendary place or it had a kind of lore to it. Right. But that, in, that ability to kind of dream about something before you've seen it yourself Mm-hmm. Um, is also an assertion of a kind of weird sort of um, poetic power, or prophetic power, to use the word um, that you were um, that you'd given us a moment ago. And and actually, what follows that line is kind of confusing to me too. I wonder if you might want to try addressing it for us. The the I'm I'm interested in the verb tense of mm-hmm. so dreams of Bolinas haunted me for years. And then the next words are, I'd huddle at the foot of the cliff. So that I'd, um, which is, you know, I guess a contracted form of I would. There's mm-hmm. a kind of, um, uh, I don't know, how should we describe that? A kind of, it, we're, we're in the past, but we're in a kind of habitual past, you know, like a, yeah, like a French right, imperfect right. kind of past or something. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, uh, so, but where is he? Where is that cliff? And where is this huddling that he would do? <laughs> Um, as though habitually. Um, yeah. Can you orient us in that way, Sylvie? Yeah. So it seems like he's saying, just to explain the habitual past a little bit more, that when he had this dream, which was often enough that it became um, a pattern, he would huddle at the at the foot of this cliff, um, waiting with strangers as the tidal wave or tembler hit. Um, it's kind of interesting. I'm not. I'm not sure where he'd be. He'd be huddling because these cliffs often there's not really a beach at the bottom. So mm-hmm. is he huddling maybe on a rock or kind of in the in a crevice of some sort of this kind of um, wall of land that then crashes into the water? And where are the people around him? Where are they all huddling? Something that's but, interesting about this poem uh, is. That, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, you. I'm more interested in hearing from you. Um, he's almost always with people in the poem. It's a. So there's the the junkie lady of Bolinas or the crackhead hustlers of the peers. And those descriptions are, are, are difficult descriptions. Um, these are people at the margins of society. They're kind of almost a little bit cruel descriptions, I think. Yeah, um, for sure. And he's here waiting with strangers as the tidal wave or tembler hit. He's kind of sitting and waiting. It seems like at the end of the world, something that I didn't know about before I got to California is the the big one is coming, which is oh. this big earthquake that threatens to destroy all, all of California. This is not something I, I knew about before I got here. Um, and I hear that with before the Tembler, which is a word for earthquake. 
pits, um, people yeah. kind of waiting at the end of the world, perhaps to cross to the other side. Um, yeah, there's an air of environmental catastrophe there as well. Yeah, I, 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 like I said, I grew up in California, and um, <laughs> yeah, the, the the idea of the big one was um, yeah, <laughs> uh, something you know, capital B, capital O, uh, was was something that sort of haunted the imagination of mm-hmm. well, of m- my imagination, and I think um, pretty regularly we'd have earthquake drills in school and stuff like that, and sort of all this catastrophizing um, about that earthquake. Yeah. So I think we're there. It's almost, it almost doesn't matter. I mean, I heard you saying, Sylvia, this is when I, you know, rudely interrupted you a, a moment ago. What I, what I meant to say in that moment was it almost doesn't matter that the geography he's imagining or the topography he's imagining doesn't really work or map on to the place as it is because he's dreaming it before he goes there. Right. Yeah. Um, right. You know, it's, it's the sort of made up, no doubt kind of error prone and romanticized um, or imagined um, composite version of a, of a place rather than the place itself. Um, and, and so who could those people in the dream be except strangers? I mean, they're not real people after all in, in, in some straightforward way, but then there to, to sort of contrast with that, that sentence with, which puts us in that kind of habitual past which as mm-hmm. you say is like the habitual past of a dream life as though kind of, pr- kind of contrasting with that pointedly the next sentence begins tonight i walk with old friends in a new dream past a vest yeah. pocket park of great formality and charm in the far west village i think i know the park he means do you think you you know the park he means there's, there's a couple that, options yeah. that come okay. to mind okay. my, so, my hunch is abingdon square but. yeah yeah so 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 you know that um, maybe talk about the old friends in a new dream. Mm-hmm. Like there's clearly a kind of clever paradoxical or witty play on words happening there. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, do you have thoughts, thoughts there? Yeah. Or it's, and I feel like that moment sort of leads us into the next kind of movement of the poem yeah. where those friends are described in sort of vivid terms yeah. and we get this, Mm-hmm. ponytail and the hog and the chopper and all that um, so <laughs> so I, I guess I'm just inviting you Sylvie to say something about that sort of section of the poem or and how you see it um developing or relating to the um mm-hmm. to the poem as we've discussed it to this point yeah so we've we've taken a step away from the strangers the kind of anonymous figures who are waiting waiting with him at, on the cliffs in California and suddenly we're in a vest pocket park and i kind of i love that expression um yeah. if you've ever been to the west village there are these little parks that are kind of a quarter of a block and they're tiny and they do feel like a vest pocket um there's also something in in that phrase vest pocket very quaint private you can almost hear like a like a pocket square the evocation of wealth here um especially coming out of the scene of strangers of, of people at the margins of society um these are also this the best pocket parks, like privatized parks, is what the peers have become now. So I think it's interesting to read this poem kind of 20 years on. Um, but to, to, to speak to what you, what you were asking about um, old friends in a new dream, um, this is a move back into where Delugos often writes, which is about his friends, about his friends in New York. Um, and we might also notice in this, in this sentence, um, Old friends in a new dream past a vest pocket park of great formality and charm in the far west village. So we have the, yeah. the title coming back to us again. Um, right. And for those those who aren't looking on the page, 
um, the phrase, the far West village spills over two lines. It's an enjambed phrase. We have the far and then line break, West village. So it takes a second to notice that we've been given the title. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there's something of a wink and a nudge there. It's a, it's a little bit comedic, kind of undercutting the the seriousness of his title, The Far West. And here we have The Far West Village. Um, it's a very pointed enjambment that relies on that line break. That's super interesting. You know, you're describing something which is undeniably there in the kind of phenomenology of reading. Like we've read the title, mm-hmm. now we're reading the poem, and there's that moment where we think, oh, there's the title, but it's done yeah. in this kind of <laughs> winking or slant sort of way. Mm-hmm. But I'm guessing, maybe I'm wrong, I don't know, I'm just speculating that what happened here was that Lugos wrote the poem and then gave it the, then plucked the title out yeah. of the line and made mm-hmm. and sort of mythologized what had been ordinary. Mm-hmm or more yeah. ordinary, but always in a kind of yeah. latent way, mythological or something. Yeah. Yeah. So, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's super interesting. Um, um, yeah. What do you make of the, of, of this character, this, my disaffected former confidant has grown a ponytail yeah. and cruises up the street <laughs> on a hog, a chopper. You know what I hear in those lines is like, Oh, it's weird. I had not thought of this until just, I read it just now. But that sounds to me almost like the the Robert Lowell of life studies, like the, oh. you, and maybe I'm thinking of the poem Memories of West Street and Lepke, and maybe that's, hmm. that's sort of why I'm hmm. in that place. But this sort of um, turning of of the people who populate the poem into sort of ridiculous characters, or yeah, um, and and that kind of um, for people who aren't looking at the poem, the word hog and the word chopper are. <laughs> are put in quotation marks as though they're being like ironized yeah. in some way. Like yeah. Delugos feels a little silly using these sorts of slang terms for you know, <laughs> motorcycle or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And so um, th- that feel that something about that pose feels Lowellian to me in a way that mm. I wouldn't have thought of him as among the influences here. And yeah. maybe it's not there at all. Maybe I just sort of, it, I'm revealing more about myself at this moment. But um, I guess I want I want to know what you think of that kind of portrait of the confidant and mm-hmm. and and what it's mm-hmm. doing to the sort of situating of the speaking subject of this poem to sort of name mm-hmm. and describe a, a friend in this way, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or maybe a former friend, a former um, friend maybe already yeah. in that in that phrase, my disaffected former confidant very arch phrase, very loaded phrase. So what has happened to make this confidant former? What has made this confidant disaffected? We don't know, and we're not really told. Um, But already there's a kind of ironic remove there. And then we're told that this confidant has grown a a ponytail and cruises up the street um, and on a hog, a chopper. And I had to look up what a chopper meant because to my mind, it's like, oh, a a helicopter? Who's on on a helicopter on the street? That doesn't make sense. You Um, haven't seen the movie Pulp Pulp Fiction, Sylvie, have you? I haven't. (laughs) (laughs) It's just giving me away. That's what everybody's thinking. That's what I learned. Yeah, yeah. No, there's this but moment where case, where like, where Bruce Bruce yeah. Willis's girlfriend in that movie says um, she refers to it as a motorcycle, and he's like, "It's a chopper." That, you know, it's, a, oh, it's like kind of a running okay. gag. In the um, anyway, <laughs> go on. Yeah, it's a it's okay, a motorcycle. I'll have to watch. Um, yeah, it's a motorcycle. Um, but this kind of like also a, this image of almost a parodic masculinity, especially yeah. riding up on a hog on a chopper. Um, yeah. 
it makes me think a little bit mentioning the village people earlier in, in this recording of that version of parodic masculinity is the village person who dresses up as a sailor or as a cop. Um, this right. is a, an image of, of gay parody that's, that's pretty familiar. Um, right. And then we're told that the hog and the chopper seem a perfect locomotive choice. And I love that shift from the kind of slanginess of hog, of chopper, and then to perfect locomotive choice yeah. to go back into the kind of archaic uh diction of locomotive um Ar- archaic kind of for silly. locomotive to be adjective there right yeah to be adjective right. and yeah. just to use that phrase at all that that word yeah. at all yeah um, he uh Delugos loves those kind of high low juxtapositions yeah. in terms of, of of diction and sound there was one earlier on too um where the drugged and dying trudge, comma, cue up for Hades to move yeah. from the kind of harsh, almost Anglo-Saxon sounding trudge to then cueing the very yeah. Britishized yeah. language yeah. Um, is, is very typical of Lugos. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, and um, now the maybe here where the I walk out that where that line begins mm-hmm. after that perfect locomotive choice we enter into at least to to my reading and again i don't know why i feel like it necessary to try to divide a poem that's not divided into stanzas as though it were up into little (laughs) sections but i feel like now we're into a kind of final movement of the of the poem where where the the other side that the enormous gondola Mm -hmm. departs for is mm-hmm. no longer New Jersey, <laughs> but so so it's it's as though the kind of I don't know that that kind of knife's edge where it it, it seems related to me actually to what you were just saying about Delugos liking that kind of high low juxtaposition where there's also this sort of knife's edge or palimpsestic kind of relationship mm-hmm. between the actual geography and the kind of mythological geography where one's there there's sort of both at once kind of feeling that we get here it seems like there's a sort of decisive turn happening towards the mythological is that is that your Mm -hmm. way of reading the that kind of final movements um tendency i think so and i think the sort of joke he makes that the other side isn't new jersey anymore um kind of clues us in that we're now moving beyond this kind of scene of New York humor with the hog and the chopper into something more serious where, you know, the boats going to the other side aren't the ferries from New York to Hoboken. They're these enormous gondolas that are kind of carrying us perhaps to the the world of the dead, which is kind of what you, the word, the phrase, the other side is also in in quotations, um, seems to imply that, that euphemism of going to the other side. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. Um, and then, and we get that, Oh, Western edge line. I mean, I guess mm-hmm. one thing that I've been wondering as, and maybe this is a, an invitation into a discussion that we might have of the poems, final lines and, um, you know, yeah. by final lines, take that however you like, but mm-hmm. anything from here on out, I guess. Um, you know, we set up this poem and this poet as like, and your scholarly interests as, you know, you're interested in, you know, among other things, but in poetry of the HIV and AIDS crisis. And we described Lugos's life and career relative to that crisis. 
Um, and the implication I think, or maybe more than implication throughout is like, well, this is one of those poems and, and yet Sylvie, um, the word AIDS doesn't appear. The word HIV doesn't appear. There isn't even really, um, a kind of, um, I mean, what I just said might also be true, for instance, of the poem Christmas tree. But in, in that poem, there was illness, you know? There's an I, IV. Yeah. There's there's death here, mm-hmm. but but there isn't I, I mean, I guess I I guess I'm wondering what your perspective is on yeah. what it means that a poem that I, I'm not trying to sort of quibble with the categorization of this poem as a poem of that that sort of fits into that category. But what does it mean that a poem that does fit into that category isn't giving us that kind of, um, you know, diagnostic language or Mm -hmm. medicalized language or even necessarily illness as Mm -hmm. a, as a kind of concept or experience or, or what have you. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm, I, I say that that's maybe a question about the kind of ending of the poem, because I think the, mythologizing here is in part sort of what the poem does instead of what Mm -hmm. I was just asking about. Um, But, but I want to know, I want to hear it from you. I want to hear your way of describing that. Yeah. I I love that question in part because elsewhere in his poetry, Tim Lugos writes really explicitly about HIV and AIDS and AZT and the other kind of um, Mm -hmm. realities of living with, that illness at that time. Um, so AZT being a medical G9, treatment, but also being a medical treatment, but, yes. but also um, he, I know he writes about like symptoms of, of, of yes. his illness. Right. Okay. But not here. Yes. Yeah. Um, not here, not here at all. And you're right that it's almost all kind of illustrated through this mythological language. And I also find the, the, the focus on myth kind of interesting because like I said, he's, a, he's also a Christian poet. I think you could, just as easily as I'm kind of thinking about him in in an HIV history, think about him as a, in a Christian poetry uh, history, that would be a kind of interesting experiment as well. So to see him turn to to the language of Hades, language of the Lethe um, is kind of fascinating. And I think part of why I like this poem is that using the mythology gives him a, an alternate way of exploring the realities of living with that illness at that time we get us and in that place we get we do get local place we get the west village we get this kind of localized language but it's also places that experience experience into something that's transhistorical that's transcendent that's mythologized mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. this is an elegy that could be read alongside like milton or um yeah milton's lycidas um mm-hmm. so there's a way in which he acknowledges the specificity of his own experience but in doing so also brings that experience into communion with the experience of, of death that others have had. Um, and I find that quite beautiful as a, an expression of poetic history and of, and of um, poetic inheritance. And maybe a, 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 a just of, you know, like human history. I mean, I, mm-hmm. yeah, um, I, sure. I, I think I was hearing the suggestion in what you were just saying, but tell me if I've, if I'm hearing it right, that, that the kind of work of communion, as you put it, or of creating a kind of 
not just um, a community that exists, not just uh, synchronically, like, you know, mm-hmm. at this moment in time, but diachronically sort of across time so across that time. people who are um, dying or have died now might be seen as participating in a tradition that is, um, you know, um, as, as sort of old as, as we have in, in art and and in human experience and culture, um, that that might be doing a particular kind of service for people in the late 1980s and early 1990s who are dying of this illness in particular Mm -hmm. and in, and in this, um, kind of gay subculture, um, if if we even agree to that term in particular because of the particular experience they were having which was of being sort of um treated as you know this this feeling of 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 wanting to be um that 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 maybe was felt more broadly in society of like wanting not to see these people wanting not to hear from them wanting not to mm-hmm. touch them or to this this mm-hmm. kind of homophobic um uh, marginalization of the victims of this crisis that there's a particular kind of um compensatory work being done by the trans historical mythologizing here is that is that the mm-hmm. the kind of um thrust of the or at least some of the thrust of the point you were making yeah. a moment ago absolutely um and maybe one way of illustrating that a bit more um is to Good look back just for a second to some of the poem we've talked about already. Um, but I, I mentioned earlier the figure of Karen, the who is the ferryman of the underworld, takes souls from the living to the dead. Um, he's what's known as a psychopomp, which is a phrase that means literally to, to carry the soul, psyche being soul, um, carrying the soul to death. Um, I think we're offered a couple of different figures in that in this poem for that role of psychopomp. One is the person on the motorcycle who's kind of carrying us right by the piers that we've already been told are kind of like a, a sticks, the river that's kind of like sticks. Um, there's the junkie lady in Bellinas. There are the hustlers on the West Street piers. There are these figures that seem to kind of gather around in the poem. Um, and what does it mean for these kind of disenfranchised figures, the hustlers, the junkie lady, to be in the ancient role of psychopomp, in the ancient role of Karen? Um, those who guide the dead to their to their final places. Um, I think there is a kind of um, a compensatory move there um, mm-hmm. to incorporate, you know, those who have been cast out by society into this grander lineage of the mm-hmm. afterlife, or how Western culture has conceptualized the afterlife in this poem. Uh, that's that's quite lovely. I I don't. Um, I mean, in light of that, I I find myself wondering how to take the um, I guess what is the final sentence in the poem that begins mm-hmm. with that phrase "O Western Edge," which does feel yeah. to me like a phrase rich in kind mm-hmm. of English poetic history too. I mean, I hear yeah. in it things like "A Western Wind" or um, you know, but okay, "O Western Edge." This is how the poem ends. A Western edge where points of interest on maps of individual hearts and bodies disappear in waters of a depth unfathomable, even in a dream, 
I had thought that sleep was meant to blunt your sharpness, not to hone and polish with the lapping of the hungry waves of Lethe. Sylvie, um, what's the, uh, how to phrase this? I mean, the structure of that, excuse me, of that very beautiful sentence seems to me to be, I'm addressing myself to, to this bit of, whether it's mythological or actual geography. And I'm saying to that thing, I had thought one thing was true. It turns out another is true. Mm -hmm. Um, can you um, it's funny you and i were talking earlier um i mean before we started recording about um teaching and about paraphrasing of poems and we you know <laughs> we invoked the old um Clanth brooks um, new critical saw of the heresy of paraphrase so I'm, now i'm asking you to go ahead and be heretical for a minute and and to sort of pa- paraphrase and then maybe we could talk about ways in which the paraphrase feels not quite entirely sufficient or whatever if you like but what is the thing that that I had thought, and what and what is the corrected sort of less naive view that he's nevertheless arrived at at the end? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it seems like if to, just to paraphrase it, so I'd thought that sleep was meant to blunt the sharpness of the western edge, and here I th- I think the western edge is something like death. Um, that sleep is meant to to make death easier um, rather than so not to hone and polish rather than to sharpen death with the hungry waves of Lethe. Um, maybe now is worth mentioning that Lethe is another river in the underworld, um, another river that has a lot of resonance with English, the, the history of English poetics. Um, but in this river, souls are uh, uh, submerged in the river and forget all memory of who they were. It's a process that if souls want to enter Elysium, which is the kind of the field of the blessed in the underworld, you have to be reborn three times. And each time you're reborn, you're dunked in the leafy. So you forget all memories of who you used to be. The river of forgetfulness. Um, that was the paraphrase though. Maybe I'm right. Ahead of myself. No, that's, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's really, that's, that's good. And that gloss is important. Right. So, um, so I had thought that sleep was meant to blunt your sharpness. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it sounds in a way like Lethe is doing not the thing we, you know, are are sort of accustomed to think of it as doing, which is this kind of, I mean, maybe tragic, maybe poignant, um, mm-hmm. but nevertheless sort of gentle and, um, yeah. you know, um, I... I don't know, caring or something, um, Mm -hmm. work of softening and um, taking, you know, almost in a kind of narcotic way, taking the edge off, (laughs) I think is a good phrase for what, (laughs) where we are here. Yeah. But this is honing and polishing and the, Mm -hmm. and the, the, the waves of Lethe are hungry, you know, so Um, maybe another way to ask the question about those lines um, beyond the simple matter of the paraphrase, which I think you gave really, um, you know, succinctly, was would be to say, okay, it, what relation do do these as the final lines of this poem bear to the poem that we've just been reading, you know, for the last mm-hmm. hour or so? Like, what 
what kind of ending is this? Does this make, does this have you go back into the poem and reconsider or Mm -hmm. think differently about um, the kind of arc of the poem or the, the journey that the poem takes us on if this is the destination? Mm. Yeah, I think we need to maybe to respond to something you, you said initially about kind of, I thought that sleep was meant to blunt your sharpness, that the, the Lethe, kind of the river forgetfulness was made, meant to, to make things easier. Um, I think it's no surprise that for Delugos, that's not the case, writing with the illness that he has, which is an illness that is fueled in no small way by a kind of a program of genocidal neglect from the state. It's an illness that mm-hmm. really um, relies on forgetting those who are dying. Um, mm-hmm. So, and in which like the, the activist response, of course, is do not forget us, see us, hear us. I think one way to think about this at the end of this poem is, you know, what is the role of poetic elegy in a time of political funerals, of protest funerals, um, which specifically call for the refusal of forgetting, um, the refusal refusal of lethe, if you want to put it in in Delugos' terms, um, for in the context of an illness that went for so long purposefully ignored and unsaid. um, Yeah. I mean, to in end a mo- with the word "lethe" is pointed in in a in a moment where at least one effective and memorable slogan among many was "Silence is death," right? Um, yes. Um. Uh, here is. Um. Well, I, now I want to. I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure. I want to be careful about how to orient this poems yeah it is striking to end with lethe in that context mm-hmm. but this seems to be a different kind of lethe i guess so mm-hmm. maybe there is the answer but um but but uh, but but i i feel as though i'm going to trip myself up if i try to articulate it any <laughs> any differently from the way um the mm-hmm. way you just did um um i i also love the um the kind of breathlessness that i was experiencing mm-hmm. even it's hard in, to read that final sentence yeah where points of interest on maps of indig- individual hearts and bodies disappear in waters of a depth unfathomable even in a dream like mm-hmm. getting to all of that it's the sort of phrase upon phrase that is extending mm-hmm. the vocal mm-hmm. performance that's required in order to get to that sort of gentle rest of a comma but yeah that last mm-hmm. that last i had thought um comes in like a like a hammer i think mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um well sylvie this is um this has been fascinating is there is there um i don't know do have we have we left any stone unturned at the end of this poem mm-hmm. are, are you um you know what is it that um t.s Eliot referred to uh, um you know new critical exegetical kinds of readings as the lemon squeezer school of criticism, you know, like <laughs> have we squeezed all the juice out of this lemon. Um, I mean, it's fun. It's ironic because of course he's, he was responsible for it, but, um, but he, mm-hmm. he, it turns out he didn't, you know, he thought it was silly, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah. Do, do, do you, is, is there anything that you want to say that we haven't yet gotten to? Mm-hmm. Maybe, one thing I'll add just 
two things on the note of Lisi. Good. In addition to what I talked about. Um, the first is that it's also the last word of another poem, a poem called A Supermarket in California by Allen Ginsberg that I think is in, in Delugos's mind, perhaps, in which the supermarket's also in the Bay Area. Um, but in that, fi- in that poem, um, Karen is a figure who's kind of overlaid with Walt Whitman. So again, we have this kind of gay, gay lineage, gay history, um, who goes out on a smoking bank and watches the boat disappear into the black waters of Leafy. So it, it, it places Delugos into a kind of broader history there as well. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention about Lethe, and this maybe gets back to some of the biography of Delugos that I mentioned right at the beginning, is that Lethe, the word, is related to the word aletheia, which means truth in ancient Greek. Um, and it's a very biblical word as well, kind of the truth of God. So I think that's also present in Delugos, or, mm. or at least would, would be present for Delugos's mind to end on a word that kind of is both a word of forgetfulness of, of devastation in his in his context, but also a word that seems to gesture towards a possible kind of divinity. Um, mm. You hear that also earlier in the poem, the word tembler, which means earthquake. Mm. Um, it's a strange word to use for earthquake. It is comes from the Spanish meaning trembling. So again, you kind of have in here, you might think about like fear and trembling, kind of trembling before God these words for, for devastation that also seem to have a hint of a kind of Christian divinity in them. Mm-hmm. Um, you always kind of see that with Delugos where he's, you know, portraying his historical moment, his, his experience of crisis, and yet always has a kind of eye on what's beyond, um, on a kind of horizon, like we've been talking about on this Western edge. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. No, uh, uh, both of those notes are wonderful. I, I, um, I hadn't been thinking of the Ginsburg, but as soon as you said it, I think, oh yeah, that that that's right, and that must be somewhere here um, in the background as well. Um, Sylvie, um, could I um, ask you to to read the poem one more time so that we can, having heard this this lovely discussion, our our listeners can have it in mind as they hear the poem from beginning to end. I'd be happy to. The Far West. The city and the continent trail off into cold black water the same way. At the western edge, a flat stretch with precipitous plains set perpendicular and back from the beach, or beach equivalent. A blacktop margin where the drugged and dying trudge queue up for Hades. Bolinas had its junky lady with gray skin, gray sweater, stumbling through the sand with a short burst intensity and long-run aimlessness of crackhead hustlers on the West Street piers. Dreams of Bolinas haunted me for years before I saw it. I'd huddle at the foot of the cliff in a cold wind late at night, wrapped in Indian blankets, waiting with strangers as the tidal wave or tembler hit. Tonight I walk with old friends in a new dream, past a vest pocket park of great formality and charm in the far West Village. My disaffected former confidant has grown a ponytail and cruises up the street on a hog, a chopper, which seems a perfect locomotive choice. I walk out to the quay where gondola after enormous gondola departs for the other side. Not New Jersey anymore, any more than something prosaic as another mass of land past the bright horizon could function as a mirror of the chopped away Bolinas Hill. Oh, Western Edge. 
where points of interest on maps of individual hearts and bodies disappear in waters of a depth unfathomable, even in a dream. I had thought that sleep was meant to blunt your sharpness, not to hone and polish with the lapping of the hungry waves of Lethe. So that's um, Sylvie Thodi reading The Far West by Tim Dlugos. Um, Sylvie, it's been um, really a pleasure to get to spend time with you and talking about this poem. Um, I want to thank you so much for um, for making the time and, and giving us the benefit of your um, critical attention. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been, it's been an honor. Yeah. Um, well, um, anytime and listeners, thanks for, um, spending the time with us as well. Uh, we will have, um, more episodes coming for you soon. Um, please do, as I always say, um, tell your friends, you know, use your social networks to spread the word about the podcast, leave us, um, a rating and a review. It helps, um, it helps other people find the podcast. It's really been a, a totally unexpected and miraculous delight for me to discover that we do have a real community and and audience here. And um, I just love to um, see that grow and and change in ways that are are both a surprise and um, and uh, a source of joy. So um, so thank you everyone and um, stay tuned. We'll have more for you soon. Be well.